Friends, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Uh, Romans 8, we're reading verses 14 to 16 this morning, and we're starting a summer series uh, called How to Pray. And the simple aim of this series is to cover the most uh, foundational, fundamental truths of prayer. Um, I know myself, I came under a great conviction uh, to be a praying church early in my sabbatical. If you remember, uh, in February, there was something called the uh, Asbury Revivals coming out of Asbury University. Um, And in that time, um, every single day for two weeks straight, at every hour, uh, people were gathered to pray and to worship. Uh, they said that on average of 15,000 worshipers attended every single day. And um, as that news was going on, and I was thinking about our church and our need to experience revivals uh, at, corporately, but also individually, uh, I came under the conviction that we need to be a praying church and we need to be praying people. And so we're doing this series in the hopes that God would form us to be a type of people who are spirit-led and dependent on him. And so we're looking to God's word for instruction over the next several weeks as we seek to be a praying people. And so if you are able, I invite you to stand with me. We stand as an act of worship to read and receive God's word. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 16. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba. Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. Let's pray once more. Father, we turn now to your word, not just with our minds, but with our hearts. And we ask that by the power of of your Holy Spirit, he would illuminate truths to us and form and mold our hearts to be a dependent people, always relying on you in prayer. Teach us to pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I was thinking about how to start a series on prayer, um, I was having a hard time coming with what the first sermon should be. It's such a necessary and important part of the Christian life. And it dawned on me, maybe the best way to start a series on prayer is with a sermon on how to start your prayer. And so that's where we're beginning today. Uh, What should be the first words that come out of your mouth when you pray? And the answer isn't a secret. In fact, the answer might be quite simple, really. And yet, uh, despite its simplicity, often we miss out on the significance of how we are supposed to start our prayers. We should begin by addressing God as Father. That's our simple and short exhortation for today. When you pray, begin your prayers by calling God Father. Now, there is, of course, power in all of the names by which God has revealed himself in the Old Testament, names that we should cherish and love, Jehovah Jireh the Lord who provides, Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals, Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner, El Shaddai, God Almighty, El Olom, the everlasting God, El Roy, the God who sees, all of these great and powerful names, and yet the most privileged name that we get to call God, the most intimate name that we get to call God is Abba, Father. When the disciples were learning from Jesus, they asked their master in Luke 11, Lord, teach us to pray. And do you remember how Jesus answered them? 
When you pray, say, Father. Of all the metaphors God uses to describe himself in the Bible, he chooses fatherhood to teach us to pray. Yes, God is our king. God is our shepherd. God is our master. But when we pray, we pray to God as father. And when you pray, Father, when you utter those first words, it has a way of taking all the truths of the gospel and it begins to trickle down into our prayers and into our hearts. I'll explain what that means as we continue. But I want to begin here by exhorting you that when you pray, call God Father. We're looking at Romans 8. And if you've been at Cornerstone for some time, you will have heard me refer to Romans 8 as the goat passage, the greatest of all time passage, the Michael Jordan passage. And you'll see just in the three verses we read how great Romans 8 is. So let's dive into it. We begin with verse 14 where Paul writes this, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. It's an incredible promise. When you become a Christian, the spirit of God takes up residence in your heart. Early in verses 9 and 11 of Romans 8, Paul wrote that the spirit dwells in us. The Spirit lives in us, not because we're so perfect, not because we're so worthy, not because we're sinless, but in order to get us there. You see, when the Spirit comes into our hearts and he sets up shop in our hearts, he does what any homeowner does who enters into a home that's all beaten up. What does he do? He renovates us. He begins to make us new. And so, the Spirit is making us more like Jesus. And he comes into our lives and we're led by him and he directs our lives. And yet, what is he directing us toward? What is he leading us toward? Not simply to become better servants of God, but in order for us to be sons of God. The Spirit makes you sons of God. Paul says in verse 15, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Now, I want to stop here and clarify a question um, that maybe you're asking. Why does Paul only talk about being sons? I mean, there are a lot of women in this room. Why doesn't he address you as daughters of God? Or to be inclusive, why doesn't he use the language of calling us children of God? And the reason Paul uses sons of God or son is because he's referring to something technical and legal according to the Roman culture of his audience. You see, in Roman law, only a son had the right to receive the inheritance of his father. Only sons were legally eligible to receive an inheritance. And therefore, if a man wanted to give his estate to somebody, he couldn't just pass it along. He would have to first legally adopt somebody to be a son. And this is what Paul has in mind when he's calling us, men and women, sons of God. He's saying God has legally made you his, his own. And in doing this, he's qualified you to receive the inheritance that he wants to give you. So God adopts us as sons, men and women. Now, just as an aside to even the playing field, you also have to remember that if you're a guy and you're like, yeah, we're sons of, of God and, and the women are like, oh, I don't kind of like that. Well, also remember that the men are therefore then called the bride of Christ. And so it kind of cuts both ways for us. But Paul is working with this metaphor of sons, understanding in his ancient context, in order to help us understand the importance of God legally bringing us into his family and giving us an inheritance. So, 
how does being adopted as God's sons interface with prayer? Well, the gift of, of adoption gives us three things when it comes to prayer. Three things I want to talk about today. First, your adoption gives you access to God. Two, your adoption gives you boldness to ask. And three, your adoption gives you intimacy to enjoy. Three things your adoption gives you in terms of prayer. Access to God, boldness to ask, intimacy to enjoy. And so let's begin here. Your adoption gives you access to God. Now, if I were to ask you the gospel, what the gospel is, most of us would summarize the gospel under this declaration, Romans 8, verse 1, therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we think of the good news, we think, oh, we were guilty sinners, rebels against God, criminals, we've broken his law, and yet he forgives us, he acquits us, and he receives us um, despite our sin. He covers us in righteousness. Right? That was the good freeing news of Isaiah 6. Remember that? What the seraphim said when they touched Isaiah's lips with the boarding coal, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And so most of us understand the good news, the gospel as we're forgiven by God. And yet, because the gospel is so glorious, the gospel doesn't end with the promise of atonement, but the promise of adoption. The gospel is so glorious. It's not just saying your sins are forgiven but you are made sons of God. So verse 14 says, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. Once pardoned by God, the judged, you're not just dismissed from the courtroom in order to return to your life as one acquitted and one innocent, but still needing to fend for yourself. Once standing before God as a condemned criminal, you're not just forgiven, so now you wander the streets as an orphan, but you're innocent, but you're not guilty. No. Once forgiven by God, the judge, you are welcomed and received into the judge's chambers. You're invited into his home. You're given a seat at his table because he adopts you as a son. See, if the gospel didn't include adoption, You'd be once a condemned criminal, but then you'd be forgiven. And then what would you be? A common citizen in God's kingdom. Once guilty before God, now forgiven. Okay, now you're in God's kingdom. But the gospel goes further to say, now led by the spirit, you are adopted as a cherished child and welcomed into God's family. Some of you here are living as condemned criminals because you haven't yet trusted in Christ. Some of you have trusted in Christ, but you don't know God as your father. And so you're just living as one in the kingdom, but still an orphan. But where we want to end up is understanding that we are cherished children. And so when you pray and you start father, you're reminding yourself of the access you now have to God. You're not praying to a genie in a bottle or the big man in the sky but your father who is in heaven. You're not praying as a forgiven orphan, but an adopted child. And your access to God isn't based on your merit, how good you did that week, how cleaned up your life was that day. Your access to God isn't based on your performance or your importance or your standing or your value. It's based on your relationship, the one that the spirit has secured for you. Imagine 
that you wanted to talk to the president of the United States, the most powerful man in America. Well, if you're a condemned criminal from prison, you can write him letters and petitions, but you won't know that he'll receive them and most likely he wouldn't receive them. Well, if you're a common citizen, you can make your way down to D.C., show up at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, stand outside the gates of the White House and call out to the president. And yet chances are he won't be able to hear you. But if you are a cherished child, then the White House is your home. The president is your father. You can wake him up at 3 a.m. in the morning. You can crawl into bed and whisper in his ear and know that he will hear you. This is the access of being a child. There's an iconic photograph of John F. Kennedy in the Oval Office, and he's sitting behind the famed Resolute desk. And if you notice, underneath, playing at his father's feet, is his son, John Jr. And it's such a wonderful picture of what it means to have access to God as our father because he's chosen to adopt you as his child. See, friends, when you pray, start with Father. And remember the access you have because the Lord of the universe stoops low his ear. He bends down towards you and says, yes, my child. And so pray. And go to him again and again. Go to him in the morning and go to him in the evening. Go to him in crisis and go to him in peace. Go to him when you mess up. Go to him when mess finds you. Go to him in your victories. Go to him in your failures. Go to him in your thanksgiving. Go to him in your supplications and whatever circumstances. Go to your father in prayer because you have access to him. Here's the second thing. Your adoption gives you boldness to ask. Boldness to ask. Ask. Paul goes on to write in verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Now, Paul here is contrasting two identities that Christians uh, can have. One is to live out of the identity of being a slave, as if you were still stuck in your sin. And the second is to live out of the identity of being a son, now led by the spirit. And Paul is saying, because God is your father and you have the identity, not as a slave, but as a son, pray in boldness and in confidence. Because Paul is saying, if you go back into a spirit of slavery, you will fall back into fear and your prayers will be timid and hesitant. When you're called to pray with boldness and confidence and assurance. Let me ask you this question. Are your prayers prayed freely or fearfully? Freely or fearfully? And as you're thinking through the question, here are some leading questions. Are you bold in the things you ask God to do for you and in your life? Because you have faith that your father is so big, he can do anything. Are you persistent in coming to God and asking again and again and again and again, because you believe he listens to the request of his children? Are you quick to run to God when you feel so ashamed because you did that sin again? And yet, no matter how big it is, you know your father won't ever turn you away. That's what it means to pray freely. What does it mean to pray fearfully? Well, do you only ask God for small measured things, prayers that require no faith to ask at all? 
Do you pray once, twice, three times maybe, but you give up after a few times because you think he doesn't really hear and he doesn't really care? Do you avoid him in your sin because you feel so ashamed to come before him? That's what it means to pray fearfully. And Paul is encouraging us to live now as sons, not as slaves, which means we pray freely, not fearfully. And we're bold in what we ask because we've been adopted. Now think about this. Paul uses the Roman concept of adoption as sons. Now, why would a father adopt a son? It wouldn't be to get something from the son. You would adopt the son in order to give something to the son. In this context, give what? Give an inheritance. Because in the very next verse, verse 17 of Romans 8, Paul says, and if children, then heirs. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Who is our father in heaven? Our father in heaven is one who wants to give you an inheritance. He wants to give you his riches, to give you his kingdom. He wants to share the bounty of heaven with you. Just a few verses later then, in Romans 8, Paul says in verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Christian, be bold in your prayers to God, for he is generous. Be bold in what you ask. He may say no. He may say not yet. But he may say, yes, you don't know. So pray and ask. And he'll do what's best for you. So James comes with a word that stops us in our tracks when he writes in chapter four, verse two, you do not ask, you do not have because you do not ask. You don't have because you don't ask. Now, James was a half-brother of Jesus. And I'm pretty sure James was remembering Jesus's teaching back in Matthew 7. Do you remember what Jesus said then? He said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Pray in boldness. And then Jesus continues in Matthew 7. He says, or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Remembering God is your father, remembering you are his child, pray in boldness. One of my favorite stories is about Alexander the Great. And he was in this large session with all his generals and other leaders. And one general came up to him and said, I have a request for you. Alexander said, speak. He said, I'd like you, great Alexander, to pay for my daughter's wedding. And Alexander asked him, well, how much would that be? And the general responded with some exorbitant number, some enormous sum, because even back then, weddings were expensive. Everybody gasped at this man's boldness, the audacity of a man to ask Alexander for his daughter's wedding. That's such a selfish request. And that much money? How dare you? But Alexander only smiled and said, whatever you ask, may it be given. Now the man was so happy he left and everyone else flabbergasted, turned to Alexander and said, why in the world would you grant that? To which Alexander responded, this man has done me a great honor. 
by asking me for such an enormous sum, he's acknowledged that I am both extremely wealthy and incredibly generous. You see, friends, what do you believe about God? Is God poor? Is your God poor? Is your God stingy? Because small prayers and small requests reflect a belief in a small God. It reveals you don't know much about God at all. But when you pray to your father with boldness, you are acknowledging that he is wealthy, that he is generous, that he is powerful, and that he is good. And so you don't pray as a slave to fear, but as a son of the most high God. So just ask. And I'll say something it might be shocking to you. I'll say this. Just ask, worry about your motivations later. Just ask. He'll sort out what you need and what you don't need. He'll sort out what is good for you and what is not good for you. If you get what you asked for, it means it was good for you to have. If you don't get what you asked for, it means it was better for you not to have it now or not at all. But entrust yourself to the Father. Pray boldly. Ask and seek and knock. And here's the third thing that our adoption gives you. Your adoption gives you intimacy to enjoy. Read in verse 15, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We cry it out. It's, the spirit doesn't teach us to say, Abba, Father. We cry it out. He puts a cry in us, a shriek, an exclamation. Why? Because we're needy, dependent children. Now you'll notice here that the word is um, Abba and Father. Abba is Aramaic, and it means father. What's translated here as father is the Greek word pater. And the reason that the translators don't keep it as father, father is because then you would think, you know, in English that it's the same word. But he's showing you, the translators are showing us that it's two different words. Now, I mentioned this because some of you may have grown up in the church and you learned at a young age, and it's kind of changed the way you understand and view God, that Abba here is an Aramaic word that was used by little children and should be translated as dad or daddy or papa. And some of you may have learned something like that. And although that is, uh, can be helpful, uh, I want to take a minute here and actually uh, get us to revisit that claim. Because I don't think it ultimately holds up. But by correcting it, I don't mean to just crush your understanding of God. I actually want to offer something that is better. The reason that I don't think Abba here means daddy, as some of you may have learned, uh, is number one, three reasons. Number one, in the Greek, there is a word that means daddy, papa. It's the word papas. And so if Paul wanted to teach you to say daddy and father, he would have taught you, said, the spirit comes and puts a cry in your mouth, papas and pater. But he uses Aramaic for some reason. And so, hmm, th that's interesting. Why does he switch languages? The second thing is, if Paul's teaching us, the spirit puts his cry in our mouth and, you know, we're to cry and pray this way. And he gives us two, daddy and father. It's like, well, which one are we supposed to call him? Is it just how we feel that morning? And so it's confusing if he gives you two choice, but no instruction on how to address God. Third, when Jesus teaches to pray the Lord's prayer, he teaches it twice, once in Matthew 6 and once in Luke 11. He teaches us on both accounts to call God father, pater, not daddy. 
Now, why am I taking the time? I'm not trying to just like ruin this for you. But I think in deconstructing this misunderstanding, it actually leads to a far better explanation, something far more superior and substantial. When in verse 15, Paul says, the spirit puts a cry in her mouth, Abba, Father. What is that? How is it more substantial? What, what will take its place? Jesus in Mark 14 is standing before the cross. He's going to die soon. It's the night before his betrayal. He's in the garden of Gethsemane. He's wrestling with God as he's facing his impending death. And do you know how he addresses God? Jesus prays in Mark 14, 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus in his most desperate hour with the suffering of the cross before him, prays and calls God, Abba, Father. So then what does Apostle Paul do? In Romans 8 and Galatians 4, he takes that cry, Abba, Father, and he says, the Spirit puts that cry in your mouth. What Jesus called his Father, you get to call his Father. What's the point here? Through the Holy Spirit, we're given the same words Jesus prayed to God so we can share the same intimacy Jesus had with God. Think about that. Think about that. The Holy Spirit welcomes you into the privilege and the joy of knowing God the Father as God the Son knew him. When you cry out, Abba, Father, in your prayers, you are entering into the intimate communion and fellowship with God that Jesus himself enjoyed. Prayer, then, is enjoying your relationship with God. It's not just about petitioning and asking for things and interceding and confessing. Prayer is about enjoying God. And looking back on my own childhood, I never really had conversations with my dad. Maybe it was the language barrier between us. He spoke Korean and English not so well, and I spoke English and Korean not so well. Um, don't get me wrong, we did talk. We did say things. It was often me to him. Really two kinds of things. I asked him questions of provision and permission. Uh, can I have lunch money? Can you take me here? Can you sign my report card? Or signs of permission. Can I go to Kevin's house? Can I go to the movies this weekend? Now, through the years, as I've matured as a son, I've learned to enjoy talking with my dad. Hopefully, I've matured beyond the point of just asking him for things. So now we talk on the phone just to talk. He'll call me this afternoon. He'll say, how is church? How is Cornerstone? And if you're mean to me, I'll tell him, you know. And if he doesn't call because he's busy or I'm busy, I'll call tomorrow and I'll say, Dad, how was Zion? That's his church. How was your Sunday? Because part of maturing is learning to enjoy a relationship, not just use a relationship. You don't pray in order to get something from God, but you pray because you get God in it. You get to spend time with God. Prayer is God's means for you to fellowship with him. I mean, if you're struggling in your Christian life, you're in, a, you're in a spiritual rut, plateaued. You're coasting along. You show up on Sundays, Monday to Saturday happens, and you show up again, and there is no vibrancy or excitement. Then I just have one question for you. How is your prayer life? What are the things you're praying about? How are you spending that time? And are you calling your God your Father? Because when you cry out, Abba, Father. Something 
spiritual is happening. Verse 16 says this, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Every time you cry out, Abba, every time you cry out, Father, the spirit is reminding you of who he is and who you are. Every time you pray, the spirit is bearing witness with your spirit. He's encouraging you. He's reminding you. He's forging your identity. If you wait to pray until you have great intimacy with God, you will never pray at all. But if you pray in order to cultivate intimacy, then the Spirit will take the cry of Abba, Father, and work out that relationship, work out those gospel realities. Your adoption as God's children gives you tremendous resources to pray. It gives you access to God. It gives you boldness to ask. It gives you intimacy to enjoy. But here's the thing. Those are all the benefits. I've had people for years come to me and say, well, you need to get a Costco membership because boom, 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 here are all the benefits. Every week I get 10, 15 letters from credit cards saying, here are all the benefits you sign up. Now, benefits are good and they're alluring and they're attractive, but it's simply, simply the benefits of prayer won't get you to pray. You need to have a change in heart. A desire put in you. Where does that come from? It comes from seeing the cost and the price that was paid in order to give you this gift. Going back to the night in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is resting with his father in prayer. Mark 14 says this, and going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. With imminent suffering and death right before him, Jesus asked his father to remove the cup, the cup of wrath, the cup of punishment, the cup deserved and reserved for us because of our sin. And yet in order to save sinners, in order to bring orphans into his family, Jesus surrendered his will to the fathers. And he paid the price by standing in the place of your judgment. But here's what you need to understand. On the cross, there was more than a sacrifice made. On the cross, there was a separation experienced. Now, what do I mean? In the darkness of the night in the garden, Jesus clung close to his God and prayed, Abba, Father. That's always how we talk to God. But in his darkest moment on the cross, as Jesus took on your sin upon himself for the first time, he experienced separation from his Father. And by taking on your sin, becoming sin for you, do you know what changed immediately? what Jesus called his God. Because one chapter later in Mark 15, verse 34, we read, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus Christ lost his ability to call God Abba, Father, so that you might have that privilege. Jesus not only exchanged places with you, he exchanged words with you. So now you can cry more than, my God, my God, but in prayer you can call Abba, Father, too. And so the Son of God lost his intimacy with the Father so that you might share in it, that you might have it, you might enjoy it, it might be yours. It's a far greater prayer to cry out, Abba, Father, than my God. 
Do you understand the price he paid to give you this access? And now you can come in all the way in. Do you understand the great boldness you now possess to ask God for anything? Because if you pray big and bold prayers, you will find God to be great and glorious. Do you understand the intimacy you now get to enjoy with him, the one who loves you unconditionally? Because you get a taste of that now as you anticipate what's to come. Dear friends, you get to call God Abba, Father. And I want to close with this short exhortation. Set aside time to pray every day this week. It doesn't have to be long. You don't have to clear an hour off your schedule. Just moments throughout the day. And simply start your prayer by saying, Father, don't launch into thanksgiving or requests or confessions. Just pause and remember what a privilege it is. Father, Abba, savor it. Because you can call him Father because he loves you and he came after you and he pursued you and he made you his own. Let the gospel realities flood into your heart and take hold of you. And once it does, speak to him as a child, not as a slave. You have his ear. So pray freely, not fearfully. Would you bow your heads with me?